That's a little loud. Can we back that down a little? All right. Um, well, a couple of uh, things, little housekeeping items, um, things that are important in the life of the body of Christ here. Uh, you heard, did hear Ben mention the wild game feast that is coming up on March the 11th. Uh, but that will be a whole weekend opportunity for us as a church, not only to participate in evangelism, but also to, uh, to grow in our ability to do it as a church. Uh, so uh, tickets are on sale for that event uh, right now. Uh, we have those available today. Uh, they're 15 bucks a piece. Um, and uh, all we're trying to do basically with that is to cover our costs and have that come out to zero at the end. Um, but uh, the, the speaker will be Dr. Larry Moyer from Dallas Seminary and Evantel, which is an international ministry training people to share the gospel. Uh, he's the guy who taught me how to share the gospel, um, and he's, uh, I think, a pretty good teacher on that front. But he'll be here with us Saturday night for the Wild Game Feast uh, to uh, share about uh, hunting wildlife and finding God. Then he'll be here the next morning. He'll d deliver the Sunday morning message, uh, which will be, how good do I have to be to have a, a relationship with God? And then uh, there'll be a luncheon on Sunday afternoon for those who are interested and want to sign up for that, uh, that uh, will address um, fears in evangelism and how to overcome those. And then on Sunday night, we'll have our leadership team uh, do some additional training with Larry uh, on that whole subject. So it'll be kind of a whole weekend uh, training opportunities as well as uh, opportunities to serve and, and uh, bring people to a place where they can uh, hear the gospel and believe the gospel and, uh, and understand who Jesus is. So that's a great thing. Now, uh, this week there's also something else uh, on a uh, kind of more sad note. Um, uh, Brad Rickey's father, Don, uh, went home to be with the Lord uh, this last week. And uh, the funeral for that is on Wednesday at 10 at the Calvert Johnson Funeral Home in Henry. Visitation is on Tuesday from 4 to 7 at the Calvert Johnson Funeral Home as well. So, uh, so certainly be an opportunity to draw near to Brad and Paula and their family and to uh, pray for them and encourage them. So uh, if you would keep that in mind, uh, Tuesday is the visitation, Wednesday funeral. Um, we need to, uh, like I say, put our arms around them uh, this week. So uh, with that in mind, let me pray for us and let's, uh, let's open God's word together here in just a minute. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the tremendous privilege and blessing that we have of being called to be your people, not by anything that we have done according to our deeds and our righteousness of which we have nothing to commend ourselves, but simply by your grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have come into relationship with you. And Father, we give you praise for that. We thank you that you have put us in a body of believers, a family of God, uh, where we can be encouraged and grow and learn and practice the things that you call us to uh, in your word relationally with one another. 
And Father, we, uh, we pray that this morning as we open your word that you would convict our hearts where we need that, that you would provide us with encouragement, that you would build us up in uh, our understanding and our knowledge of you, that we might worship you well here this morning and in days to come. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I mentioned last week that uh, as we're studying Romans, one of the reasons we're doing that is that this year, 2017, is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And then I heard a few people ask me later, what's a Reformation? And, uh, and so it occurs to me that maybe some of you might not know what that is. And, uh, and why it would be important to celebrate. And briefly, the Reformation is a period in history when the gospel was reclaimed uh, by the church. Uh, there were two major issues, a lot of minor issues, but, or more minor issues, but the two major issues that led to the Reformation from within the church in the Western Hemisphere uh, was... Uh, were the, these two issues. Uh, number one, how does a person receive salvation? Or to use a theological term, what justifies a person before God? Is it faith in Christ, or is it faith in Christ and good works? Okay. The Reformers said that a person comes to faith uh, it comes to saving faith when they put their trust in Jesus Christ by God's grace and by those things alone, and that you are saved in order to do good works, but not by your good works. Amen? Say yes. That's what you believe. <laughs> that's what the Bible teaches. Okay, I hope that's what you believe, because that's what the Bible teaches about how a person comes to a relationship with God, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? And the other issue is this, that what is the source of authority we're going to use? Are we going to say that the traditions of the church and her creeds and councils and uh, popes and these kinds of things stand over the Bible and tell us how to read it? Or are we going to say, no, what the Reformer said was, no, the Scripture alone is our authority, and the Scripture stands in authority over the church and over its officials and creeds and councils and people and tells them what to believe. Okay? Who is the supreme authority? Is it the church or is it the Bible? The reformer said, the Bible is our authority. Um, and, and I am very grateful for the Reformation on a variety of levels, uh, you know, not least of which none of us would be here were it not for the Reformation. And on top of that, none of you would possess a copy of the Scriptures in your hands in your own language were it not for the Reformation because prior to the Reformation, Possessing a personal copy of the Scriptures in your language was a crime. And the act of translating it into a language like English was a crime. Uh, one of the guys who tried it, uh, first guy to produce a Bible in English, he died before they could kill him. And uh, so they dug up his bones, burned them to ashes, and scattered them in the Thames 
over in England, okay? Uh, the privileges that you enjoy as a believer in Christ and the understanding you have of the Scriptures and the fact that you have a copy of the Scriptures itself, it, these are all results of the Reformation, which was a very good thing and uh, certainly worth celebrating, okay? So, um, so, I want to, so, so that's what the Reformation is and what it was and why it's worth celebrating. But I, we're studying the book that started the Reformation, the book of Romans. Uh, Romans, what it is, is it encapsulates in uh, just a relatively few chapters, 16 chapters, what the gospel is and how the gospel works itself out in, um, in every area of life. So, the, so Romans is, is probably uh, the most succinct but also extensive presentation of the gospel and its implications in your whole Bible. And so it's important that we understand Romans. But what we're doing this morning is walking down what I call the road to darkness. Okay? Uh, verses 18 to 32 of chapter 1 which it, it, the emphasis there in these verses is on the need for the gospel. Well, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. And for in it is the righteousness of God that is proclaimed, is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith, right? That's 1617. And then he's going to tell us 18 to 32, why the gospel is needed and why it needs to be proclaimed and why it's valuable that God revealed it to us and why it needs to be embraced and believed by faith. And it is because human beings are on the road to darkness. They are on the road that leads away from God. Remember Jesus talked about two roads? He said, narrow is the way and small is the gate that leads to life and few people find it. But broad is the way and wide is the road that leads to destruction and many people find that one. And Paul is talking in these verses about the wide road and the people that are on it and how they are going to their destruction. So, we want to look at verses 18 to 23 first, which describe how humanity's truth suppression descends into foolish idolatry. And basically what these verses are about is about how sin affects our ability to think. It affects our ability to reason and to think and to understand who God is and what he's like. So if you've got your Bible there, open uh, verses 18 to 23 first here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, remember this. Context. Context is 16, 17, about the gospel. And these verses, in fact, all of the verses in the rest of chapter 1 and all of the verses in chapter 2 are describing the kinds of people whom God saves through the gospel. Okay? You want to bear that in mind as you get kind of into this whole list of sins and things that people get into, that these are the people whom God saves. These are the people to whom Paul is sent with the gospel. These are the people to whom we are sent with the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of these kinds of people. Amen? So we want to bear that in mind. Uh, Now, the first thing you see in verse 18 is God's wrath. And what it means, what God's wrath means, is that God, because He is a righteous God, not only must punish sin, but does punish sin. And his wrath against sinners in, and their sin is not limited. According to verse 18, it says it's against all their various forms of ungodliness and unrighteousness because our sin is not accidental. We didn't stumble into it. It was deliberate. Uh, it, says, it says here that um, look at the phrase there at the end of verse 18 about that by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let me explain what that means. Y'all ever been to the beach and had a beach ball, one of those big multicolor striped ones? They're, they're kind of awesome. You know, you blow them up, and they're fun to kind of bat around and play with in the sand and so forth. And, and when I was a kid, what we used to like to do is see how long we could hold one under the water. Right, And, of course, the beach ball is vinyl, and you get it wet, and it's slick, and so forth. And, of course, the water is moving back and forth. And you, but you can hold it under there if you work at it for a while. But what you're doing is suppressing that beach ball and trying to prevent the properties that it possesses from, coming to the, you know, from allowing that to come to the surface, right? Uh, and it's an active process. You have to work at it for a while to prevent that thing from popping back up. And what Paul is saying is analogous to that. He's saying that people, when they reject God, are not innocent. That they have chosen, they have chosen to rebel against God. It's like when you're a little kid, you know, when you're, and you're a little kid, you're not too, too very smart yet and you shut your eyes, and you think when your eyes are shut, no one can see you? Right? Have you seen this? Right? They're like, I'm hiding, Daddy! And I'm like, hey, you're still in the same place where you were. Okay? My eyes are not shut. Um, I can still see you, right? Um, and, and some of you might be thinking that, that, well, how do you know that this sin that their people are into is deliberate? And the rest of these verses in this section make that clear. If you look at verse 19 to 20, Paul says that God has made the truth about himself obvious. And people are like a little kid who shut their eyes and go, I can't see. Right? I can't see. Well, I've made it obvious. 
says, Paul says that, that God has made the truth about himself plain to everyone in the creation and everyone on earth if they reason their way through what they see from God's creation, they can understand some things about God that are also true. I don't have time to get into how this all works necessarily, but if you look at the creation, you can see things like order. You can see things like complexity. Right? Think about all the systems in your body as an example. And see how the, and how they all, at least ideally, function at the, in the way that they're supposed to. Uh, you see design, you see intelligence, you see creativity, you see morality, you see community. All these aspects of God's creation, and probably several more besides. And you can know that things do not come from a, from a source lower than themselves. Right? Every high thing has to come from something higher than itself. Water can't rise higher than its own source. And so you understand as you consider what you see in God's creation, and particularly as you look at human beings, that that didn't come from nature. In fact, it can't come from nature. Things do not ascend in complexity in nature. They get simpler because nature tends toward entropy and toward disorder, not toward order, not toward design, not toward increasing complexity, but towards increasing simplicity. And so you know that someone, that something higher than the creation had to bring the creation into existence for it to be the way that it is. And notice the end of verse 20, that people refuse to recognize this because their sin corrupts their reason. And they refuse to recognize this. And so verse 20, they are without excuse because all these things can be known about God from observing his creation. And therefore, there is no excuse not to worship him and to seek to know him. There's no excuse. But that's not what humans do. In fact, what they do, according to Paul, is to refuse to act on what they know about God. And as a result, their thinking becomes futile, which means that they just make up their own ideas about how things got here, about who God is, right? You ever have a conversation with somebody who says things like this? Well, I know the Bible says that God has wrath, but I don't believe in a God of wrath. I only believe in a God of love. And I always say, well, that's interesting. However, you know, what really matters and the question that you really need to get an answer to is not whether or not you believe in a God of wrath, but whether a God of wrath actually does, in fact, exist. Right? Because whether or not you acknowledge the existence of something, if that something is there and it has an impact on your life, you better know that it's there. Amen? You know, like as an example, you can, you can refuse to believe in the existence of gravity, but if you jump off of a roof, the law of gravity will come into play in ways that you find painful and distressing. 
right? And it's the same thing about God. It matters very little what we think about God and a great deal what is true about God. But it says here, verses 21 through 23, that though they knew God, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. They just decided they would invent their own ideas. And as a result, they became foolish in their hearts. And they claimed to be wise, but it, even though they said, we're the wise ones who know all things, they exchanged wisdom for foolishness. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What he's saying there is that rather than, rather than worship God as he really is, as he has revealed himself to be, not just in things like Christ, not just in the scriptures, but also in the creation. They refuse to acknowledge that and they invent a God of their own imagining that they make with their own hands. And they worship the creation rather than the creator. You can see this in our society right now, right? There are segments of our world right now in our culture in America that believe in what we might playfully call justification through recycling. Right? That well, if you take care of all your plastics and your paper and your glass and all of this, we're going to save the earth because we worship the creation. Right? Now, is it a good thing to not abuse the planet? Yes. But are you going to save your soul through saving your plastics? No, you're not. Okay? And... The creation is still just that. It is still just the creation. And the thing we should worship is still the creator of these things. And people in Paul's day, and he's writing about people who worship idols, they were, I think, a little more honest about, about their worship in some ways in that they would act, could actually point to the thing they bowed down to. Right? We do the same thing. And people in our day, with our... Uh, complex society, we have maybe different, the idols look different, and we don't give them names, and we don't say, oh, I bow down to Ares or Aphrodite or whatever, but people bow down to the creation in all kinds of ways, right? Things that are made with their own hand. Isaiah talks about this, you know, he says, this is actually kind of a Hebrew humor kind of a passage where Isaiah is talking about how a guy will go out into the woods and he'll select himself a nice tree and he'll chop it down. And it says with one end of the log, he uh, makes a fire and warms himself and with the other end he chops out an idol and bows down to it and calls it God. Now that's a high level of sophistication, right? Because you've got you've to be an expert to know which end of the tree is God and which end is firewood, right? <laughs> But people do that, right? And yes, it's stupid. But why do they do that? Why do they bow down to the things God has made rather than to God himself? Because they refuse to acknowledge 
God for who He is. They refuse to acknowledge God for who He is. That's the point of, uh, of verses 18 to 23, that our reason is corrupted by sin, and so we refuse to see God for who He is. And we say, you know, we act like little kids and we go, I can't see. I can't see. Right? It's not that you can't see. It's that you, will, you refuse to open your eyes to what God has revealed. And, you know, what these people are like, um, it's, it's, Paul calls it foolish darkness. But what it is, what it is like, it's like, Wiley Coyote running off the cliff and hoping that you don't hit the canyon at the bottom because there's nothing supporting what you believe. It's foolish darkness. It isn't long before foolish idolatry descends into lustful immorality. That's the next section, verses 24 down through 27. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now here's what this passage is saying in summary, that once people reject the truth, about who God is and what He has revealed about Himself, then God's wrath comes on them. And it doesn't always come in giant, obvious interventions. You'll notice that when people sin, they are not normally struck dead on the spot. But what does happen very often is that God does this. He steps back... And he says, you'd like to engage in rebellion? Very well. Enjoy. Enjoy. And he gives them up to their sin. And God's wrath is revealed not in that he whacks them, but he has created a moral universe which operates according to his moral principles. And when you violate those, what happens is, your sin comes back around and bites you. One of my favorite examples for this is a, a good friend of mine when we were kids told me about, told me about how his dad built a zip line uh, in the backyard. And it was great fun. They, they, they rode the zip line and rode the zip line and rode the zip line. It had a big T-handle on it. and you know, It came from about 20 feet off the ground all the way down to where you could get off at the bottom. Well, they rode it to a point where they broke the pulley on it. And it had a big steel cable with this pulley attached and so forth. And, and his dad was a pastor and told him, Now, Sam, don't ride that thing until I fix the pulley and, and, uh, and get, a new, get new equipment on there because you'll get hurt. And he said, Dad, Dad, it'll be fine. I, I know how to do it. I know how to do it. I'll, I'll ride it. I'll be safe. It'll be fine. Don't get on there, son. It, you'll get hurt. 
Dad, Dad, I, I know what I'm going to do. Um, he goes, I, I'm going to take a D-ring, and I'm going to just snap it on there and hold on to it and ride it down. It'll be great. And he says, I'm telling you, son, don't do that. You'll get hurt. And he says, no, it'll be fine. I'll try it. And he's like, all right. He says, so my dad watched me from his study, sat and drank some coffee, watched me from his study as I climbed the ladder, hooked on my D-ring, grabbed hold of that steel D-ring as it went down a steel cable. He says, one thing he, dad knew that I did not was that steel on steel creates friction, especially when you put weight on it. And he goes, I got about... He goes, I got about halfway down, and that thing started to glow. <laughs> and he goes, I was still 10 feet off the ground when I let go and landed flat on my back. And he goes, he goes and my dad, being a pastor, a man full of compassion, walked out to me drinking his coffee and went, I told you it was a bad idea. <laughs> while I walk in and walked back in the house while I laid there going, <gasps> sucking air, right? Trying to get a breath, right? That is kind of the idea behind verses 24 to 27, that God gives people up. He says to them, essentially, thy will be done. You want to engage in rebellion? You want to engage in immorality? Very well. Get a gutful of it. See how it goes. And verses 24 and 25 have to do with uh, heterosexual immorality. And verses uh, 26, 27 have to do with homosexual immorality and all of, that's, all of its permutations and types. And the punishment of God's wrath on people who go from Foolish idolatry into lustful immorality is that God lets them have their way. And, you know, the thing, you know, ancient people, like I say, were more honest. They would name their idols. You know, they named this one Aphrodite or Venus. And they would bow down and they would worship her. And they would go to the temple and engage in prostitutes of both sexes and so forth. And it was just a, just a wild and creative deal on their sin. Now we, in our culture, we don't need to do that anymore because we don't believe that there are any restrictions on this. But what happens is, is that, is that as you go into worshiping the creation rather than the creator, what you do is you're worshiping elevated versions of yourself and one of the idols that you will seek to erect is one to your own lust. You will seek to build yourself an idol to your passions. And maybe those are heterosexual passions, 24, 25. Maybe those are homosexual passions, 26, 27. But the point is, is that lust does not satisfy and that God gives you over to it and that is the judgment is that God says you want your way in this go ahead and look at the terms that are used here the lusts of their heart and impurity the dishonoring of their body 
believing a lie. Dishonorable passions, unnatural relations, consumed with lust, shameless acts, error. Every part of this is sin. Whatever, whatever, and here's the thing, there is a God-honoring context for sexuality. Amen? Say amen. Amen. There is. There is, God gave marriage, one man, one woman, in covenant with one another before God for a lifetime. And, there, and that is the context for that. It is like the fireplace, if you will, in your house. And, and it is designed to provide warmth and beauty and enjoyment in, the, in that context. If you take those burning logs and you set them on the living room rug, however, you will destroy the house. And God will allow people, as part of his judgment, to choose to move the fire into the wrong context and to allow their life to be consumed by it. That is his judgment on that. And it is a result of idolatry, of trading in the living God for some elevated version of yourself and your desire. And then, and so you have 18 to 22, or 23, you have corruption of your reason by sin. 24 through 27, the corruption of your body with sin. Last several verses, you get the corruption of your mind and of your relationships with other people. Look at verses 28 to 32 here. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You know, when you... I took horseback riding lessons once upon a time. And you can control that 1,200-pound that animal with about a 6-inch piece of steel and a couple of leather straps called a bit and a bridle. And you can turn that horse wherever you want him to go. You can make him jump fences. You can make him gallop. You can, you can canter him. You can trot. You can walk back to the barn. You can do whatever with him you want him to do because you have control of him. But if you drop the reins, then that's called letting the horse have his head. And then you let the horse do whatever he wants. And I don't care how big a person you are, that 1,200-pound horse outweighs you by a good bit. And he can do then whatever he wants to do. 
including buck you off, by the way, right? And do whatever he wants. And he just kind of runs wherever he wants to go, right? Or walks or whatever. And, and what God does with people who are sinners is he lets them have their heads. And he lets them do whatever they want to do. And if you look at this list again, this is what that produces. It produces all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hating God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Can I just say, by the way, I love the fact that disobedient to parents is in that list. <laughs> okay. As, a, as an example of sin, right? Uh, I just want to preach on that for about 10 minutes, right? All right. <laughs> I won't do that. Okay. But here's the thing. The point of this is this. That when you exchange the truth about God for an idol in whatever form that takes, then that idol will drive you eventually into immorality. And then your immorality also corrupts your mind and your relationships with other people. Whether you're talking family relationships in the home or you're talking social relationships out in the world, you become corrupted body, mind, soul from one end to the other as you pursue your sin and reject God. And God will let you do that. But it is, it is a horrific result. It produces what uh, the philosopher Thomas Hobbes called bellum omnium contra omnis, which means the war of all against all. That everybody is at war, essentially, with everyone else on the planet. Because they are at war within themselves and at war with God. And you cannot be at war with God and at peace with everyone else. You can't do it. But you might be surprised to learn that the result of God just letting people have their way is not repentance. Letting people have a belly full of their sin and rebellion doesn't produce what it doesn't produce repentant people, does it? What it produces is people who, though they know God's righteous decree that those who do these things merit death and hell, they not only do them, but they celebrate other people doing them too. Now, I'm not going to say much about that, but I will say this. That is exactly where we are right now as a culture. That is exactly where we are right now as a culture. We don't need a new president. We don't need a cultural revival. What we need is a spiritual revival. We need to stop pursuing sin and stop rejecting the truth that we know and turn from our wickedness and be healed. Amen? Wouldn't it be refreshing if on the new session of Congress or when the president was sworn in, 
instead of giving a political address, he stood up and said, I and my people have sinned. And we need to proclaim a national day of repentance from all the wickedness we have done and are doing. I'd vote for that guy or that woman who would say that and mean that and follow up. Because the major point that Paul is making in these verses is not simply that human beings apart from God are wicked and sinful and terrible. That is true. And it, you know this sermon's depressing. I'm sorry. They're not all joyful, right? They're not all fun to give either. But the major point that Paul is making is, is let me back up. He's not telling us these things that sinners always descend deeper into sin simply to tell us, ain't it awful? Aren't they horrible? He is telling us to magnify the need for Jesus Christ and to explain the salvation that comes through him by believing the gospel. And if you're looking for the point of this passage, it's this, that sinners always descend deeper into sin, but God gave the gospel so that sinners might be saved. Remember context? I beat on this earlier. Context. 16 and 17 is the context. That everyone, everyone who believes in Christ might be saved. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And you might ask, including these people, Paul? Yes, most especially including these people of which I was one, and so were you. I was an idolater and a lustful man and a corrupted, angry, insolent, proud, disobedient to my parents' person. And so were you. And it is for these people that the gospel is given. It is for these people that Christ came. Amen? And that is the point. God, in His wrath, must punish sin. And so He gives people over to it that they might get their belly full and that then when the gospel comes to them, they might go, I'm so tired of living in sin and rebellion. And this is the best news I've ever heard. That God could give me new life, though I am a rebel and a traitor, a sinner against Him. He sent Christ into the world that the same sinners He gave over to His sin might be saved from us. And the point of the passage is not to tell us how bad human beings can get. It, and it isn't just to tell us that God condemns and punishes for sin, although both of those things are true is to tell us that Christ came for these kind of people and offers salvation to them and to magnify and to exalt and to build up 
and to celebrate and to trumpet God's grace. That it was not for the good people of the world that Christ came. You know how I know that? Because according to your Bible, there aren't any. The world does not divide between good people and bad people. It divides between bad people and Jesus. And if you're not Jesus, guess which category you're in? (laughs) Okay? And guess which category I'm in? And so this is meant to magnify that in the midst of all kinds of sinfulness and idolatry and lust and rebellion that God sent Christ into the world to save sinners. And you see you see the light of the gospel much more clearly when you see the darkness into which the light comes. It's just like if you shut off all the lights in this room and close down all the shades and then you lit one single candle, how brightly it shines. And that is what the gospel is, except it's not one candle. It is a giant nuclear explosion into a world of sin that you have this entire the entire globe lit up with the glory and light of the gospel at a time when it is desperately terribly needed amen because apart from God's intervention through Christ and the offer of the gospel all of us as the scripture says here, deserve to die. And that God will give us up to our sin. In fact, I think to a great degree, that's what hell is. Is that God says to us, you want to have nothing to do with me? Very well, I have a special place for you where you can have nothing to do with me. And nothing to do with anything else that I made that is good and would bless your life. Enjoy. I hope you like it. Because it's what you've enjoyed your whole life. But God, in His grace, sent Christ to the cross to die in our place for our sin and to be raised from the dead that no one would have to suffer that penalty. And that no one would have to just endure the consequences and sow the wind and reap the whirlwind that their sin brings into their life. Amen? Now, when we proclaim the gospel, we need to proclaim this one about the real God who really does punish evil and sin, but also who really sent His Son into the world to save the worst of sinners and to save you and me. That God is a righteous God who punishes sin and evil, but He is also a gracious God who by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ saves from sin and from the penalty that His righteousness demands. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a righteous God. 
who will not allow sin to go unpunished, but that you are also a gracious God who pours out the, the punishment He demands on His Son that those who put their trust in Him might escape and be welcomed into your family and adopted as your children. Father, I pray that we would, we would see your revelation for what it is, something which magnifies your greatness and your glory and your grace to us. Father, I pray that we would celebrate your grace, that you, seeing us in the midst of the mess we had created for ourselves, seeing us in the midst of our rebellion against you, seeing us in our lust and our hatred, and our pride and our evil and our idolatry, you pulled us out and brought us to yourself through faith in Christ. And Father, may we magnify you and worship you and declare your glory to a world in desperate need of hope and joy and peace that only comes through Christ. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.